Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friends Christina Soriano and Jonas DiGregorio. Jonas and Christina co-founded the Psychedelic Literacy Fund, a beautiful nonprofit focused on translating books on psychedelics into different languages, providing a massive impact at a comparably small financial cost. In this episode, we discuss Jonas and Christina's respective journeys, the impact psychedelic medicines had on their paths, and how their love for music and community brought them together at a music festival in Oregon. From there, they describe the history of starting the Psychedelic Literacy Fund, the books that have been translated thus far, and how the fund brought them together with one of our shared heroes, Dr. Stanislav Grof, the pioneer of LSD psychotherapy. We then discuss the life of Dr. Grof and the impact his work has had on our respective lives. Next, we discuss the book The Immortality Key and the idea that if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. From there, we discuss the inner workings of the book publishing world, the importance of reading, the connection between literacy and the ongoing resurgence of psychedelics today, and the Women's Visionary Council. Please enjoy. Jonas, Christina, how are you both doing tonight? Great. Very good. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining this discussion. Jonas and Christina are two people that I've been really blessed to meet recently during my spiritual journey, and they've actually been kind enough to provide some music for past episodes. Now I'm really excited to get them on the spot to actually get to know them a little bit better. So (laughs) with that, Christina, Jonas, whoever wants to start, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on where you come from and how you know each other? Sure, I can start. So my name is Christina. I'm Filipina. My mom is half Chinese and I grew up in Texas between Houston and Galveston. I moved to San Francisco 17 years ago and I've been here ever since. I currently work as the center manager for psychedelic therapies and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I'm also the executive director for the Women's Visionary Council, which is a nonprofit that lifts up the voices of women and underrepresented in psychedelic spaces. It's been founded since 2007, and I'm just really stoked to be with such amazing women and and work in this field. And so I'm just really stoked to be on your show and provide music. As you mentioned, I'm a a musician. I play ukulele. I'm a pianist and I play doombag, harmonium, other instruments. I feel like music is just another way for us to connect to the heart as as a language. Jonas? Well, I'm originally from Italy. I was born and raised in Rome. And uh, I moved to San Francisco in 2019 after meeting Christina. We met in the summer of 2018 in Oregon. And I currently work as a literary agent for Stanislav Grof. And uh, together with Christina, we founded the Psychedelic Literacy Fund, which is uh, a project that uh, aims to fund and support the translation of books about psychedelics in different languages. And we're both very passionate about reading, about books, and about psychedelic therapies. And we realized that uh, there are many beautiful books that haven't been translated yet. 
in many languages. And this is something we thought we could do something about. So we created a donor advice fund, which is a very useful vehicle to receive donation and make this a collaborative project. And then we build partnership with the different publishers in order to select the books and make this possible. Other than that, yeah, I think this is really, this is the third opportunity we have to discuss about this project. We had the opportunity to share a little bit about the Psychedelic Literacy Fund with uh, another podcast that I shared with you previously. It's called Psychedelics Today. And so this has been a while since the last podcast was shared, and we are happy to, to discuss more with you and give an update. And Jonas, where's your accent from? <laughs> New Jersey, as you might imagine. <laughs> I knew it. Knew it. <laughs> wow. So I am so excited to talk to you both about the Psychedelic Literacy Fund. I think it's such an amazing project. The books that you've selected already are just so exciting. But before we get into that, we'd love a little bit to hear more about your personal stories. Obviously, psychedelics have been important parts in both of your lives. And so maybe to kick things off, would be interested to hear your journeys with psychedelics and what brought you to them. Mm, nice. Sure, I can go first. Well, I have to say, I growing up in Texas, there wasn't a lot of this kind of activity. I, you know, I really discovered weed by looking in my landlord's drawer in the telephone book drawer, and it was in the back. And I was like, what is this bag? And then they found out and we all smoked together. I call them my weed parents. Um, so that was really my first entree, the first gateway, I guess. And then I remember the first time I did ayahuasca and grandmother medicine said to me very clearly, we are how the universe experiences itself. And I actually said that to city count, Oakland City Council when the decriminalized Oakland passed. And it was a hair-raising experience because there's a, a red clock that ticks down from 60 seconds and you have so much to say. And there's just like a line of people just staring at you why you, why you want to decriminalize plants. <laughs> but I did it and it was it passed unanimously. So my experience is in advocacy and and just lifting up these voices is so close to me, near and dear to my heart, because I, I know the potentials of these medicines to bring us to a perspective that's so healing, you know, to quote Carl Sagan, to look at the earth as a pale blue dot, as a beam of sunlight. And when we see the earth from that perspective, all of our hopes and fears and desires and people we hate and people we love, including ourselves, are in this pale blue dot. And having that perspective is so transformative and healing. So I really believe in the power of them. Well, for me, the, the journey started with a mushroom and later with LSD. I was a teenager, I was 16 years old, and... The curiosity came after reading The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley, by reading also the book by Albert Hoffman, and, uh, and right after by reading uh, Stanislav Grof, Psychology of the Future, and other books that he wrote and that were already translated in Italian. 
So this really triggered a completely change of paradigm. And I, I became very interested in philosophy, in spirituality, especially in mysticism, in that state of consciousness where you feel everything is one and everything is perfect in a way. And, and also just realizing how all different traditions, all different religions have so much in common. They somehow got inspired by this experience of unity and this feeling of uh, incredible intelligence or higher spirit and love. So that was also what inspired me to then study philosophy at university. I was very interested in uh, world religions and I had the opportunity to study Buddhism, Hinduism, mystics from the Christian tradition. And later on, about 10 years after I had my first psychedelic experience, I had the chance to try ayahuasca. And that was the beginning of another chapter of my psychedelic exploration. It helped me going through a more personal biographical healing. So letting go of certain kind of emotions and really transforming my relation with my parents, with myself, being able to see blind spots. And that journey went on for, uh, for a long time and still going on. Basically, I got inspired to host ceremonies with ayahuasca led by indigenous leader from South America and later by a therapist from Spain that I had a chance to meet during a psychedelic conference in the United Kingdom. And so throughout this period, until I moved to the United States, I occasionally hosted these medicine ceremonies, mostly with ayahuasca. And I had the opportunity to witness incredible healing experiences in the many people that came throughout the years. And I was able also to witness the power of integration, the importance of preparation, and really taking care of the seven setting that is so important in these experiences. So, yeah, I then moved to the United States with the intention to be in this field more and to contribute to spreading awareness and education about the potential of these incredible tools. And for us to be together. Yeah. I think that's the most important would you like to know how we met? Absolutely. Okay. Sure. So we can, for me, 2018 was about going to one festival that year. Of all the festivals I would go to, I only had time off for one. And something told me to go to a new one called Singing Alive in Cascadia, Oregon. And I'm like, am I really going to buy a ticket? How am I going to find my place? How am I going to find my way? And something just said, go. And so I pitched my tent and see this circle of people, some of them with instruments, some of them without, but very colorful. And they're sharing songs. And so I said, I ran to get my ukulele from my tent and I came back and I played one of my originals called UBU. And then this handsome man also shared one from the Rainbow Gatherings. And that's how we met the first time. I actually have a video of Christina playing a song even before ever speaking with her. Wow. <laughs> and for me, uh, instead, uh, you know, that was just one of the many, of many festivals that I was attending that summer. So my, my journey that summer started with the Boom Festival in Portugal. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Ozora in Hungary. After that, I went to Beloved in Oregon. And then I went to Singing Alive where I met Christina. And right after I went to Burning Man and then to the Bhakti Fest in California. 
And in one of these, I met Christina and after touring all the festival, I visited her in San Francisco and we just realized we had so many things in common. So I invited Christina to visit me in Italy. So that winter she, she came, she met my family. And that's also when we decided to, to live together. And I proposed. Mm-hmm. And so in February 2019, I, I came to San Francisco. And a few months later in April, we got married, City Hall. And so many things have changed <laughs> since then. Everything is <laughs> Yeah, it's been in hyperspeed. What do you think it is about romance and love that, sorry, about love and music that goes mm-hmm. so hand in hand? Oh, romance goes in there too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, personally, I'm very passionate about a specific kind of music, which is devotional music. I had the opportunity to be in an environment where people sing and play this kind of music, thanks to Rainbow Gatherings, which I have attended for many years in Europe. And what are Rainbow Gatherings? There are people gathering in nature, and it's something that started in the 60s from the hippie movement and spread also in Europe. And it's a regular gathering that takes place every summer in a different state in Europe, as well as in the United States, as well as in other countries. And it usually lasts a month. People go camping and uh, they cook together. They share music throughout the day. People share workshops. And, and the kind of music they play, it's a very specific, like there are songs that were born in rainbow gatherings and they're part of this tradition. But there are also mm. mantra from India and the spiritual songs from the medicine circles. And mm. so people, you know, usually gather around the fire and they play and they sing, but it's really a sacred space. And of course, there are people playing different kind of music, like reggae or more mm-hmm. the Beatles, etc., but for the majority, they play these very beautiful devotional songs. And so by going to Rainbow Gatherings, I started playing guitar. And so when I found myself in these uh, ayahuasca ceremonies and I saw music played an important role, I felt inspired to learn new songs as well as share the songs I learned at Rainbow. So when I went to Singing Alive, I went also before meeting Christina one year before, and I fell in love because it's a small gathering all about devotional singing. And there are also musical instruments, but the center is singing. And so that was the first thing that really connected us, finding this shared passion for singing and in particular for devotional music. And Christina, in fact, can tell more, but you know, she is part of uh, the Dances of Universal Peace, it's a beautiful tradition where they sing songs from different cultures and different mm-hmm. religions. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to add something? Yeah. For me, the rainbow gatherings is just, if you think about a place in the woods where you meet other people or other humanoids of the human species <laughs> And they're so welcoming and accepting of however you show up, any shape or form you are in. And that acceptance, like unconditional, is pervading through the whole experience. When you walk in, there are people who say, welcome home, welcome home. And there is just this feeling of, it's about being in nature and connecting back to the roots and gathering as people sharing knowledge and wisdom and, and music around the fire. 
this type of thing with no alcohol. And also just being together in a very sustainable way. I love that at Rainbow Gatherings, people bring their own dishes, their own plates, and they cook together organic food, make a fire. You don't actually take a car for as long as you stay there. So yeah, Rainbow Gatherings for me were the embodiment of, you know, living ecologically, respecting Mm. the planet, but as well, you know, interacting with each other in a more open way than normally. So I always felt very inspired in my life after each rainbow gathering to like play more or eat better, you know, treat the planet in a better way. And yeah, it's part of my background. Yeah, I've only been to one. I went to the one in Oregon in uh, 2017, I think. And yeah, it was it was a, a, a place to feel your like yourself. But your original question was, what is it about music and right. love? Ah. Well, they're both languages that transcend words. And it's, it's a connection, vibrational connection. And that goes from the heart. Beethoven said, from the heart, it has sprung into the heart, it will enter. And when you, when you listen to like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or anything that really speaks to your heart, it, it's beyond words. And that's how it is when you're surrounded with love. I have to say the first time I, I held Jonas's hand at singing, when we were at singing alive outside of the tea zone, <laughs> it felt like there was ayahuasca coming through his hand. And I was like, what? Have you done that much? <laughs> how much did you do? <laughs> Never had anybody telling me something like that. <laughs> Yes, some of the synchronicities are just signs that we've that we saw that weekend that just says go be together. It's like the same picture of I don't know if you know Amma, the hugging saint. So there's her name is Amma and she's from India and she hugs people. And we had the same picture. I had this thing, this the picture in in my wallet. She had the the picture in the tent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that were happening just, you know, in a few days, one yeah. after the other. It's around conferences and meetings. Do you know the um, Science and Non-Duality Conference? I don't. Their like slogan is the the symbol for OM. OM equals MC squared. <laughs> so when I saw that on a sticker, I looked it up and it's called Science and Non-Duality. And there's a... Uh, conference in California and there's a conference in Italy. So I went and volunteered to the one in California and I had a, a bag from science non-duality with me. Yeah, I, I had been to the one in Italy volunteering as well. So when we met, we you both knew it. about this very little conference <laughs> that has been going for many years. And we were like, wow, we went to the same yeah. conference. It's pretty geeky. <laughs> From, you know, I love that. Me in Italy, she in California. Yeah. So it was amazing. Yeah. Anyway. That's so cool. Can I show you guys something hilarious based on that conversation? Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> I love that. So it's for the listeners, it's a plate that I use for rolling joints and it's got Einstein looking at some cannabis and it says T equals HC squared. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you have to send that out to us. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, really cool to hear all the synchronicities between the two of you when you met. And amazing you're able to figure it out transatlantically, right? Because Christina, right? You might you were in San Francisco and Jonas, you were still in, in Rome at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's far. I have to say, though, too, I think I heard about this tradition in Hawaii when people are striking a business deal, they don't face each other and shake hands. They go to the ocean and stand side by side and look out at the view. And again, it's about perspective. And I have to say that having the psychedelic literacy fund as a project between Jonas and I is so helpful because we have found a way to give back in that centers around things that we are passionate about. And so instead of looking at each other and nitpicking and bickering and things like that, we're, we're just like, okay, let's transition the focus to something that actually serves and gives back. Well, I think that's a great segue into what is the Psychedelic Literacy Fund? Yes. So this was uh, something that we started doing in 2020. And we were considering finding a vehicle, a way where we could gather resources and then distribute these funds. So through a webinar, I heard about Donor Advice Fund, which is something I didn't know about at all before. So I did a little bit of research and I thought this could be the perfect vehicle for what we want to do. Because basically, uh, Donor Advice Fund is uh, an account that you open with a foundation. Because of that, you basically donate the funds to the foundation and you can have a tax deduction because of that. But you still retain somehow uh, control on that in the sense that you can give a recommendation to the foundation and say, can you give a certain amount to this nonprofit? And of course, the funds can only go to another nonprofit, cannot go back to you or a private person. So this led us to inviting other friends to join us. And then uh, we, we did the first donation to MAPS, which uh, was uh, uh, very open to help us then distribute the funds in order to achieve our goal. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Which is a nonprofit. And then we started making a list of books that we thought would be worth translating or supporting the translation of. And uh, I picked some of the books that I read uh, in the previous years, as well as books that were coming out. And then we, we asked ourselves, okay, let's try to focus on one. Which book could we choose to, to start with? And so we, we looked at the list and we said, okay, we need to start by a book with, by Stanislav Grof. He was turning 90 years old in 2021. Yeah, in 2021. And so we said, this, is, this could be a wonderful present for his 19th birthday. Mm-hmm. And so we, we selected The Way of the Psychonaut, which is a wonderful book in two volumes. The book was already under translation in a few languages. You know, it was already being translated in Chinese, in German, volume one. And so we, we started uh, uh, raising the funds and supporting the Italian translation and the Spanish. We contributed to the, the German for the second volume. 
and we we help this process going further faster. And this uh, led us also meeting uh, wonderful people that have been touched by the contribution of Stanislav Grof in their lives that wanted to help us in a way that was very surprising. Mm -hmm. We were initially uh, hoping to support the translation of just one or two editions each year. And uh, we we were able in just a couple of years to to support more than that. Mm -hmm. And we had the chance also to do a few other titles. So we had a particular publisher uh, interested in translating a book by Ralph Metzner. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to co-finance the translation and publication of Allies for Awakening by Ralph Metzner, which is a wonderful book. And also Realm of the Human Unconscious, which is uh, the first book written by Stanislav Grof uh, in Italian. This came out last year. Yeah, this is uh, is really the, the adventure that we started. And we learned so much on the way. Mm-hmm. We learned about fundraising, had uh, the opportunity to do uh, an online course on fundraising, which was very interesting. And I actually found that it's a big passion of mine, like how we can move resources in something that make us feel we're doing something meaningful. And it's really an art and a science at the same time. So we we were introduced to people in Czech Republic, uh, people in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, people in France, people here. Washington, D.C. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So we we created also a website just to share what we were up to doing. And this is really a side project for us in the sense that we both have our own full-time jobs. And this is something we, we do or in, in the weekends mm-hmm. or like sometimes in the evening when we come Whenever back from work. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's definitely something that we think it's an incredible opportunity for people who have a philanthropic inclination Mm -hmm. because uh, it showed us that with a small amount of money, you can have an incredible impact. You can make a book available to a whole country. Like imagine Spain, you know, like if you translate something in Spanish, it's not just for the people in Spain, but it's for all the people in Mexico and South America that speak Spanish. So it's hundreds of millions of people have access to that book that otherwise, if they don't know English, couldn't read. And uh, yeah, so when we saw from this perspective, the kind of impact we could have with a relatively small investment, Mm -hmm. we said, wow, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And also we have to thank the fact that we invested in Bitcoin uh, at the right right time. Mm -hmm. So this also led us to say, uh, we have been blessed to have the opportunity to do a good investment at the right time. We want to give back. Mm-hmm. And because of this, we are also able to receive donation in Bitcoin because uh, the foundation we chose is able to receive donations in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So awesome. this is something we really want to mention because uh, awesome. we know there are other people out there that had the same experience of mm-hmm. all of a sudden being you know, wealthy or somehow having the resources to, to do philanthropy. So it's nice that we we chose a foundation that is able to receive also this kind of currency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say, yeah, is that um, when you operate from scarcity and fear, you get more of the same. And being with Jonas and doing this project has helped me to heal from that mindset and really live from a place of, of abundance and opportunity and love. And so the amount of support that we've received is just astounding. I have to be honest though, when he first told me about the donor advised fund, I was like, what, (laughs) how does that work? What is it again? But after working, working with it and now it makes sense. 
And I'd also love to say that just to see Stan Sofgroff and his wife, Brigitte, with Jonas, it's just, Stan is the most humble person I've known. He's 90 years old, the pioneer of LSD psychotherapy, has done more LSD psychotherapy sessions than anyone else on this planet, has written 20-something books in 20 different languages, and yet he's so sweet. And to see the interaction between him and Jonas is just it's like a grandfather, grandson, really beautiful. That is beautiful. And I would love, and I know you just gave a little bit of uh, his bio right there, but would love for the listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with Stanislav Grof just to talk a little bit more about who he is, what he's contributed to this field of research and how your relationship started with him. Yeah. So he was born in Czech Republic in 1931 and he earned his degree in medicine, started uh, um, helping in uh, some research with LSD when it was still legal. And eventually had the opportunity to to try LSD himself. And he had an incredible mystical experience that completely changed his perspective about consciousness and the universe. He then went to the United States. Of course, I'm jumping because there's so many things about his life. We could be for hours. But uh, (laughs) he eventually uh, went to the United States and had the opportunity to be part of uh, other studies with uh, LSD for the treatment of terminal patient. So patients that were diagnosed with cancer and were facing uh, anxiety, fear, all of that. And this uh, experimentation with LSD proved to be incredibly effective in reducing fear, anxiety, and um, reframing the experience uh, of death. At least, you know, the perception of death. And so he was able to conduct this research until it was eventually terminated because of the war on drugs. When that happened, uh, Stan, beside writing this incredible book, The Realm of the Human Unconscious, which is focusing mostly on his research on LSD, he developed uh, this incredible technique called holotropic breathwork that allows everyone to enter in a non-ordinary state of consciousness, in particular, on a holotropic state of consciousness. So a state of consciousness that brings us towards wholeness and worked for many decades around the world, spreading this technique that is incredibly healing and effective. And so now there are hundreds of people trained in holotropic breathwork, practicing holotropic breathwork. Meanwhile, he wrote other books specifically about holotropic breathwork. He became a teacher at the Californian Institute of Integral Studies, a lecturer. He really had a wonderful career. So uh, I've known of his work for so many years, but never interacted with him directly until recently when uh, actually it was through Susan. So Susan is the director of The Way of the Psychonaut, the film. Documentary film. Documentary film that came out. Recommend. Really wonderful story. And I I guess you mentioned you you watched it. So if you want, you you can also share what was your perception, impression. Mm. But basically through the director of this documentary, Susan, um, I I was introduced to Stan. No, I helped with that part. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's how we that's got in how touch at the beginning. Touch, yeah. You know, I said to Susan, Susan, by the way, you know, I, I would like to, to understand who, who owns the rights of the way of the psychonaut. Is it Maps? Is it Stan? And so the following day, Stan reached out to me and said, uh, I heard you are interested in this book. I own the rights, the foreign rights. So you can negotiate directly with me. 
And so I explained the whole project to the literacy fan and explained that I'm just trying to facilitate this for other publishers. And I think he was touched. So for the few mo- first few months, we just interacted occasionally mm-hmm. because of this. And, uh, and we had the opportunity to go to Germany uh, in 2020 and visit him and Brigitta in, um, in the house where they live now in Wiesbaden. So sweet. Which was another incredible synchronicity because uh, my mother grew up in this city in Germany. She's Italian, but uh, my grandfather emigrated to Germany and so she grew up there. And so when I realized they were there and I still have family members in that little city, I said, okay, this is a sign of the universe. We have to meet them in person. So that was really something that allowed us to build us a closer connection. And after that, came their proposal, their invitation to help also managing royalties and foreign rights. That's so exciting. I'm curious, what was your, if if I can, what was your of the movie, of the documentary? Yeah, absolutely. So I first came across Dr. Groff from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And then as I've just continued my exploration into spirituality, came across him again in the book, The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot, which was another just incredibly influential book for me. And so then as I've just continued to explore and learn more about these ideas of collective unconscious and archetype and all the work that that Stan has done over the last seven decades or so, just someone who just has kept coming up and been a really incredibly important person for me, both through his teachings directly and the people who have come after him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so saw the documentary, The Way of the Psychonaut, just because, you know, had to learn a little bit more about him just because I love him. And um, and yeah, it was just it was a beautiful documentary, a beautiful tribute to what's been just an incredibly profound and and meaningful life. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to know that uh, The Holographic Universe has been an influential book for you because it was the same for me. That's a book that I had the opportunity to read uh, around the same time I I read Stanislav Grof books. And it completely changed my perception of, of reality. There were all these phenomena that were, it was possible to understand from that uh, paradigm of the holographic universe. And I think it's actually a book that I discovered through a footnote in the book of Stanislav Grof. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Something I, I love to do when I discovered his books, it was really to go and uh, read all the footnotes and all the quotes mm-hmm. and all the books that he was quoting and then trying to find them and read them. And I think this is really what is incredible about his work. He was able to bring together mythology, uh, quantum physics, uh, history of religion, medicine, psychiatry, psychology, and make a synthesis that uh, brings a new perspective on, on who we are and how we can heal from many pathology or many mental disorder that we affect our society. And he was able to study this in a scientific way, just prove that applying that approach and that kind of substances or, you know, like that kind of transformative experiences, you could achieve healing or an improvement in the condition of the patients. Mm. Yeah. And also, I, I have to say, his trust in the process is something that I kept as a gift in my life. Always trusting the process mm. when you work with this medicine, when you witness a reaction that maybe you don't expect. Mm-hmm. really trusting the process and the inner healer that is inside each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I own a lot to everything that I was able to learn through his mm-hmm. books. Yeah. You know, you make me think of back to earlier in the conversation when you were talking about your earlier years, 
and your interest in philosophy and mysticism. I'm curious to get a sense of, first off, where do you think the line at philosophy ends and mysticism begins? <laughs> and then secondly, do you think your experiences from exploring psychedelics spurred those interests or you had those interests which caused you to take psychedelics or all of the above? Yeah, yeah. It's probably hard to say, but I have to say before taking psychedelics, I was not interested in philosophy at all. I was already studying philosophy in high school and I didn't like it. It made no sense to me. It was only after taking psychedelics that the things I was reading started to make sense. Regarding the question, where, where is the line between philosophy and, uh, and mysticism? Well, definitely there are overlapping. A book that was very influential for me was The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley, because he was re referring to a specific philosophy that is perennial, has always been there. You can find traces of this perennial philosophy in all different cultures and religions. And it's different from some kind of philosophy that is more a uh, construction of the mind or a speculation of the mind. Uh, this perennial philosophy is based on an experience that then you try to describe with words. But it has a strong connection with an experience. And this is what struck me, the fact that the same thing happened to me. I had an experience that changed my worldview. And then my fascination for philosophy came as a result of uh, reading and studying how human beings try to make sense of this incredible experience that some people have spontaneously or some people have as a result of being part of a ritual or a ceremony and so on. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I, I couldn't not include also the immortality key in the list of books we would love to have translated in different languages because that's another wonderful research about mm. uh, the history of uh, ancient ritual, mm. Christian rituals. And that's something that always fascinated me a lot. And you've seen in mysteries and the kind of uh, substances and plants that were probably used. It's still today a mystery, but there are interesting questions that the author brought up. And uh, I think that would be something nice to be actually studied at school or mm -hmm. at university. I remember when I was studying the Lucinan Mysteries, I mentioned the book that Albert Hoffman, together with two other scholars, had written about the Lucinan Mysteries. And my professor at the university was dismissing any other possibility. Like he was dismissing the possibility that there was any psychoactive substance involved in these uh, Lucinan Mysteries. Mm -hmm. And the work... Uh, Brian Marescu. Yeah, what he wrote in The Mortality Key is really bringing light to all this incredible investigation. And especially I love the way he described his adventure traveling to Greece, to Italy, and to other parts of the world to find all kinds of documents and also to interview different people that can help us uh, bring in some light to this mystery. Yeah. You want to say about when you talked to Brian Murescu and you told him about the Psychedelic Literacy Fund? Yeah, that was funny because at one point he said, wait, did you create a donor advice fund just to help translating these books? He said, yes. And he was like, wow, what a great idea. He's like, that's cool, man. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, just letting you know, all the rights are still available in other languages. So... Just, yeah, there's so much work to do, you know, we, yeah. we can't wait to, to really have other people joining us and, and have this really scaling up yeah. at some point. Yeah. The famous quote from the book, Immortality Key, is in the beginning and where it says, it's um, written in Greek outside of 
a temple, temple in Greece. Yeah. And I don't know how to say the Greek part, but in English it translates to if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. And that's also, you know, the core of every rite of passage, you know, having that experience of psychological death through which you gain the deep conviction or the insight about the eternity of the soul, the eternity of life beyond our physical body. It can reframe your, your approach to life in a very deep way. And I know you guys hinted at this in your discussion of the immortality key, but you know, maybe at the risk of spoiling the book for the listener, could you kind of summarize what, what Brian's theory is here and what the implications are for the origins of Christianity if they turn out to be accurate? Yeah. Well, he gave a, a wonderful, there was a beautiful webinar organized by Harvard Divinity School where the person interviewing Brian was asking, are you trying to say this? And he was, I'm not saying that. I'm just <laughs> telling this. And then the following question was, okay, and now I want to ask you, are you trying to say that they were using this? And he said, well, I'm not saying they were using this. I'm just showing that there is evidence about the fact, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I really don't want he's to spoil lawyer. the book. And he's a lawyer, you know? So I would enter, you know, in trying to summarize the incredible research he did in the book. But it's just bringing up incredible evidence about bigger picture about what was happening. And there is also, uh, it's very fascinating uh, the introduction of new sciences like uh, archaeochemistry. So mm-hmm. analyzing things that are left on a calis that can help us. Chalice. Chalice, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a glimpse into what was used in the rituals. And so what he's saying there could be much more research into this because now we have new tools and new technologies that can help us investigate this. And I think this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Can I say what? Yeah. Because we listen to the audio book as well as have the print book. So it's like stereo sound, <laughs> multidimensional. But when we got to the chapter when he was talking about the beer, the really good beer that the monks make, it really inspired us to <laughs> experience firsthand this beauty of alcohol. <laughs> I, mean, I find very fascinating the interaction of human society with psychoactive in general. Yeah. Not just psychedelics. You know, the whole interaction between human beings and psychoactives, including alcohol, beer, etc. It's extremely fascinating because it shows that the human mind needs ways to get out of the restricted rational mind Mm -hmm. and get closer to what Aldous Huxley called the mind at large. And there's a beautiful article Aldous Huxley wrote where he says, humanity always, uh, you know, found ways. It could be art, it could be public events with many people, sports, celebrations, and it could be drinking wine or beer. He said there are ways where it it can bring to addiction, you know, and and there are new plants or new substances that can help us achieve that uh, to free the mind in a way that is uh, less risky and more conducive to a higher state of consciousness. And we seek that. It's a natural. It's natural. It's really innate. It's innate in in the brain, in the mind. And therefore, it's, it's very important to reframe the whole conversation about psychoactive substances and how we deal with them. Because I think most of the 
risk or damages that sometimes we, we see or we hear about, they come from criminalization. They come from the fact there is stigma and from the fact that there is not enough education, etc. And people so, are taking the wrong dosage or they're having to get it from illicit sources. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's going to all be avoided if, if it were mm, accepted. And, and it's getting there. I feel like in 2022, we're definitely turning over stones that have not been. And I just love how it's coming together. We're having a podcast around this and it's beautiful. It would be helpful to better understand how the book publishing world works. Cause you've talked about like how some authors retain foreign rights and others don't. So maybe it'd just be helpful to kind of explain, you know, how translation typically happens, what you and the psychedelic literacy fund are helping to actually make happen that wouldn't necessarily happen otherwise. Thank you for this question. Yeah. Well, this is something I became familiar while growing up because my father is a publisher and before becoming a publisher, he was a distributor of books. So he started a company that would buy books from publisher and then provide these books to bookstores, bookshops. Then when in Italy, yeah, when internet came around, he created an online store of books. Now we, we have Amazon, but back then Amazon didn't exist. And so he also decided to cover a niche. So only books about spirituality, psychology, or, uh, health, or holistic therapies, um, religion, spirituality. And therefore, I grew up in this environment where these kind of books were in the house. I could go in the office and pick a book. And when he decided to be a publisher, I started to be more familiar with this industry. So how it works, you buy the rights from another publisher, then you find a translator, and then you have somebody doing the cover. So there are many steps and many roles in publishing a book. But as you mentioned, sometimes authors give foreign rights to the publisher. So it's the publisher publish the book in the first place that then sells the foreign rights to other publishing houses around the world. In other cases, this is rare, but it happens. Sometimes the author keeps foreign rights. And in that case, every time a publisher wants to have the book in a specific language, that's a negotiation taking place between the author and the publishing house. So this is the case of Stanislav Grof for some of his books. It is usually convenient that the author gives the foreign rights to the publisher because big publishing houses go to book fair. Like there is one big, a big one in Frankfurt, there is a big one in London. And, uh, and in these moments, you know, different publisher trade rights about different kinds of books. Authors otherwise wouldn't have the chance to really be there. Sometimes what happens is that a publishing house is not really promoting the book outside of the uh, United States, for example, other than the English language. And so because of that, sometimes a book doesn't get translated for many years until some person somewhere get to read the book and say, this book needs to be translated. It's, it's, very, you know, it's, it's something that uh, deserves to be translated in, in another language. So I went through this process when uh, I read a book that uh, was very important for me. It's called uh, The Secret Chief Revealed. It's a book uh, originally published by MAPS. And it's uh, an interview with an underground therapist. His name uh, Leo Zeff. After reading this book, I thought I would love to have this book in Italian because it's so interesting. 
what he decided to do. You know, uh, psychedelics were illegal, but he felt a moral obligation to provide this healing opportunity to his patients. And he explained into detail how to do it, how to structure a group session, an individual session, the dosages, the different kinds of substances. So when I read this book, I reached out to MAPS and I actually met Rick Tobin in person. This was the Boom Festival uh, in 2008. And that was the first time I met him. And I said, I would love to translate this book in Italian. Is it possible? Chief. The Secret Chief. And he said, yes, absolutely. Get in touch with my team, with, uh, with MAPS, and we will have you sign a document so you can start translating the book. So just to give you an idea, it took a whole year to sign that paper. Because the focus of MAPS is doing clinical trials. You know, their primary goal is not publishing books, even though they publish amazing books. So just to get to the point of signing that agreement took uh, more than 10 months, almost a year. (laughs) But eventually we managed and I translated the book. It was my first experience translating a full book. And, uh, And then a publisher, not my father, but another one in Rome, selected this book and so was published with this publishing house in Rome. And so this is a little bit to give you an idea of how I got introduced to this industry. What I realized uh, in the last years is that if I were to translate by myself all the books that I love and that I read, that I translated, <laughs> my life wouldn't be enough. Yeah. So I, I just decided, even if I could do it, you know, I, ha- I have the capacity to translate a book. I prefer to raise funds and, and have uh, other translators do the work so that uh, in a few years or a few decades, I can have... Uh, dozens of books or more translated in different languages. Yeah. <laughs> and which languages do you know? Well, uh, besides Italian and English, uh, I studied French at school, and then I learned Portuguese and Spanish by traveling. So it feels like we're so Anglo-centric, like Anglophiles here, being born and raised in the States. And only when you travel do you realize how liberating it is to know how to speak and read another language. There was a travel company that said, do your country a favor, leave. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And so when we realize how many books about psychedelics and psychedelic therapy are in English and how many books are in other languages, there's no comparison. And so like Jonas said, how much more people can we reach when these books are translated in other languages, because trauma doesn't know borders, doesn't know languages or dialects. It's unfortunately worldwide. And so we need to extend that healing, that healing wisdom to everyone. Well, I just, I think it's such an incredible organization that you two have started and so meaningful. And as I think about the concepts of both literacy and the use of psychedelics, they both to me speak of this idea of gnosis or knowledge and how transformative the printing press and then the internet was in terms of democratizing everything, free thought. And same thing with psychedelics. It just, as you talk about the perennial philosophy, just the ability to connect directly with God through those experiences. It's really cool that you you two have figured out how to create such an amazing organization that's going to have such lasting impact. Thank you. But I like you mentioned the printing press. You know, I, I see in a similar way psychedelics as a disruptive technology. Mm. They are actually something that have been around for a long time. 
But we are now in a period of history where potentially we might have psychedelics used first scaling up if we gain, you know, legal access to them. And really, they could be something to disrupt mental patterns that are not serving us anymore. It could be a way to hack our own minds in a way that allows us to survive on this planet. Mm. Because we no doubt we are, you know, really on the, on the edge of a catastrophe. Mm. And we, we need technology for evolving as a human species. Yeah. So we have been able to develop incredible technology to transform the physical world around us in good ways, but also negative ways. And we absolutely need urgently tools and technologies to transform our inner space so that we can relate in a more intelligent way with each other, with ourselves and with the environment. Has there been much progress in Europe as much as there's been in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. So I can say that there are many medicine circles all around Europe. So it's definitely present. It's also hard to have numbers or because all of this is really underground word of mouth. In terms of clinical trials, the United States is more advanced, but I'm very glad that clinical trials are starting happening or being planned also in Europe. So I think this field will grow a lot in the next years. And Christina, earlier you mentioned your work with the Women's Visionary Council. I'd love Mm. to hear a little bit more about what you're doing there. Oh, sure. So in 2007, there was a conference in Basel, Switzerland, celebrating the birthday of Albert Albert Hoffman. Hoffman. And all of the to-dos, all the, you know, big, big names in in that day were there. Speaker after speaker after speaker. And Annie Oak, one of the founders, was there with Carolyn Garcia, and they looked at each other and they said, where are the women? Why aren't the women on the stage? Like there was one woman, maybe one out of 35. So they came back and talked with uh, Miriam and Jeannie, and the three of them founded the Women's Visionary Council and flipped the agenda. So it was all women and maybe one or two men. And they gathered in uh, Hot Springs in California and had this conference with women leading the charge. And this is how the Women's Visionary Council started. There's a separate, or the Women's Visionary Council holds a colloquium called the Women's Visionary Congress every year since 2008. We took a couple of years off, but every year we've had this colloquium and it's just a beautiful gathering where it's uh, people who have a voice and have a story and have something to say, but, but they're, and they're given the platform, the stage to, to say. So the last one that we had was in 2019 in Oakland and over half of the speakers were BIPOC and it had, it's all on our, on our website. You can go to visionarycongress.org. And all the speakers are there. Anne Shulgin, the widow of Sasha Shulgin, did a beautiful presentation on psychedelics and the shadow. 
and really profound and healing what she says. You cannot help someone with their mental state if you have not done the work yourself. So important to work on your own shadow, which I'm also working on all the time. (laughs) It doesn't go away, that shadow. (laughs) It keeps following me around. (laughs) (laughs) But thank goodness, right? Because we need that. I mean, it's the non-duality of it. And we'll definitely put a um, link in the show notes to Visionary Mm -hmm. Congress. What also, if folks want to donate, um, how can they do so for the Psychedelic Literacy Fund? And can they specify a language or book that they want to donate it to? Or or how does that work? Yes, good question. So if they want to donate to the Literacy Fund, the best way is through the website, psychedelicliteracy.org. And in this website, they will find a link to the foundation that we selected to open our account, which is RSF Social Finance. Once they get to that website, they can choose the amount they want to donate and they can add a note. They can add a note saying, we want this donation to go to the Psychedelic Literacy Fund. If, if in addition, they want to specify to us that they want that donation to be for a specific language, let's say Spanish, they can send us an email so that we know that donation is a restricted donation. And definitely, we are totally open also to engage directly with donors or people that want to be part of this. And so have a a Zoom call or phone call so we can get to know each other and make sure their donation goes and get used in the way they would like to be used. Personally, I I have the vision at some point to create what they call a giving circle. Mm -hmm. So having a, a group of people extremely passionate about this that gathers a few times a year and select the books together and selects the languages and um, brings idea about different books and different titles. But definitely at any point, a person can specify, we would like really to help you with this book in particular because we love the book mm-hmm. and or because I come from that country. My family comes from Poland. You know, I would like some of these books being translated in Polish, you know. We want to be, you know, uh, also a vehicle for those people, those people who emigrated to the United States and have family members in Europe or around the world that are not able to access the kind of information we are all able to access because we speak English to do something. And that's why we are really trying to build and grow the network of publishers we, we know and collaborate with. Very cool. And what is the typical cost per language to translate a book? Yeah, that really varies according to the country. And so, as you can imagine, translating and publishing a book in Germany, it's more expensive than in Spanish. And then it depends how how much the book, you know, how many pages, you know, so a 700 pages book, like The Way of the Psychonaut, which is two volumes, it's definitely more expensive than a book that is maybe 300 pages. But it can be quite expensive. So, you know, uh, translating and publishing a book in a different language, uh, adding all the costs can go anything between twenty dollars and $50,000. Gotcha. You have to acquire the foreign rights and then you have to contract a translator and then somebody proofreading the translation and then the layout and then the cover and then the printing. The printing is usually the cheapest part. And then there is uh, the whole work of, you know, like having the book actually on sale. So there are a lot of people involved in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Very complicated. 
it's interesting that sometimes you find publishers that are interested in these books and uh, they have they have the willingness to put a budget for that. Mm-hmm. And so you can just help them matching the gap between what they have, what they can contribute with and what is needed. And so this is the kind of, of partnership we are trying to cultivate the most because we want the publisher to be personally invested in the project. Mm-hmm. So when they're investing themselves in the book, you know they will do a good job also to promote the book and to actually have the book available as soon as possible and well distributed. Well, that is amazing. If you do end up organizing those healing circles, please let me know. I'd love to join. That sounds like such a cool project. Thank you. Absolutely, we will. And also we want to say that we love books, but we also love audiobooks and eBooks. So when we build these partnerships, we try to emphasize that we would like the book to be available always as eBook and ideally at some point in the future also as audiobook. And our vision is at some point to really have also translation of scientific papers, training manual, so that training opportunities like the MDMA training with MAPS or other trainings coming up are available to students from other countries in the world that have maybe a basic speaking capacity of English and a basic language skill in English, but would be much easier for them if they could read these manuals in their own language. Mm -hmm. And so we would like to expand to making subtitles of documentaries about psychedelics. So everything Mm -hmm. that can be done in terms of education and public awareness to address the language barrier. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot to do. Yeah. Well, Christina and Jonas, thanks again so much. This was such a fun conversation. We'll again include the show notes, a link to the Psychedelic Literacy Fund and the Women's Visionary Council. Anything else before we wrap up tonight? Mm. No, I just really appreciate you having us on the show and being able to connect in this way and hopefully reach out to others who are listening in and be inspired. Absolutely. Same. Nothing to add. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, too. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's such a privilege to get to know these incredible individuals and to see the massive impact two people can have in this crazy mixed-up world. It's inspiring to see how Jonas and Christina figured out a way to spread information to hundreds of millions of people who wouldn't otherwise have access to books about these incredible plant medicines, the true potentiality of which we haven't even scratched the surface. For anyone who, like me, has felt unable at times to make a difference in this world, I hope their story empowers you. It calls to mind my favorite Steve Jobs quote. When you grow up, you tend to get told the world is the way it is, and your life is just to live your life inside the world. Try not to bash in the walls too much. Try to have a nice family life, have fun, save a little money. That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was once made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same.
In the spirit of love for research on psychedelics specifically and literacy in general, I wanted to end this show mentioning five of my favorite books that feature psychedelics. Number one, The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. We discussed this book in the episode, and I can't understate the importance it has had on my life. The theory of the holographic universe is complicated, and was constructed by physicists exponentially smarter than I'll ever be, but I'll do my best to summarize. One of the serious issues that Albert Einstein had with the principles of quantum physics was with the concept of quantum entanglement, whereby particles that had once been connected could communicate their polarity to one another once separated. They could do so instantaneously, thereby violating Einstein's special theory of relativity, which stated that nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. Einstein hated this principle of entanglement, calling it spooky action at a distance. Despite Einstein's qualms with the principle of quantum entanglement, subsequent particle physicists were able to prove it experimentally in recent years. Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, offered an explanation to Einstein. He viewed Einstein's argument as based on a fundamental error in viewing the twin particles as separate. Rather, they were part of one indivisible system, and it was meaningless to think of them otherwise. This was an incredibly profound realization, although the implications of it went largely unnoticed by most physicists, including Bohr himself, until David Baum developed the theory of the holographic universe. Thankfully, Baum spotted Einstein's bias in Bohr's blind spot and was able to create a coherent theory to explain the phenomenon of entanglement. Baum hypothesized that the universe should not be viewed like a machine made up of smaller and smaller subatomic particles, but rather as a holographic structure. Within this quantum hologram, the entirety of the cosmos is captured in a wave pattern and folded within all the materiality we perceive and manifest existence. That the view of space as a vacuum is completely inaccurate, and that instead it's the opposite, a plenum, in which energy is abundant everywhere. While Baum did not go so far as to argue that consciousness is the underlying singularity of this holographic structure, my view is that subsequent researchers building on Baum's theory have unequivocally proven this to be the case. At the same time as Baum was developing his theory, neuroscientist Carl Pribham developed a similar theory with the brain as a hologram, totally independent of Baum's work. Pribham's theory provided an explanation to a number of strange phenomenon, including the non-locality of memory and creativity, that further supported the holographic structure of the cosmos. Baum and Pribram later brought their ideas together, and in my opinion, most of the cutting-edge scientific research happening today is being built on the foundations of Baum and Pribram's theory, the implications of which cannot be understated. Number two, The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Dass. This book serves as a cultural icon in the development of psychedelics research and the integration of Western science with Eastern spirituality. The lead author, Timothy Leary, was a Harvard psychologist in the 1960s who became exceptionally fascinated with psychedelics after he first took psychedelic mushrooms in Mexico in 1960. Leary stated that he had learned more about his brain and its possibilities and more about psychology in the five hours after taking those mushrooms than in the preceding 15 years of studying and doing research. Leary started the Harvard Psilocybin Project with Albert Metzner and others, and eventually expanded their research into LSD. The researchers made an important connection between their experiences on psychedelics and the description of the soul's journey after death, as explained in the Tibetan Book of the Dead several millennia earlier. The team wrote the psychedelic experience as a user manual for people taking psychedelics to explain in spiritual terms what is happening during the ego dissolution process comparing the experience to the three bardo states described in Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. 
This manual and the countercultural revolution it was partly responsible for creating led to a backlash from the establishment. Alpert was later kicked out of Harvard and Leary resigned in protest. The relationship with authority only continued to deteriorate as Leary and Alpert continued their research without the backing of an academic institution, and Richard Nixon at one point labeled Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. These issues in turn led to the inclusion of psychedelics as Schedule I substances when the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 was passed, in turn shutting down legal research on psychedelics for almost 40 years. Number three, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Thankfully, the stranglehold on psychedelics research did not last forever. Psychedelics research has undergone a massive reignition that started in 2006 when Roland Griffiths of Johns Hopkins University published the landmark study, Psilocybin Can Occasion Mystical Type Experiences Having Substantial and Sustained Personal Meaning and Spiritual Significance. This study and others that followed in the subsequent decade caught the eye of journalist Michael Pollan, who in 2018 published How to Change Your Mind. His landmark book helped to introduce the general public, including myself, to the history, politics, and medicinal applications of these therapies. His book has been an incredible contributor to the resurgence of psychedelics research and has helped to destigmatize these medicines from the old prevailing biases of Western society. Number four, Be Here Now by Ram Das. As I mentioned earlier, Alpert and Leary went underground to continue their psychedelics work after leaving Harvard. However, Alpert began to recognize that while psychedelics had introduced him to the spiritual meaning he was seeking, they were not providing the sustained sense of fulfillment or understanding that he desired. He decided to travel to India in the late 1960s to learn Eastern spirituality directly, a trip which eventually took him to the Uttar Pradesh region and the holy spiritual being Neem Karoli Baba. Alpert became a deeply spiritual person in India, subsequently changing his name to Ram Das, or Servant of God. Be Here Now is the book he wrote as a result of his spiritual journey and his experiments with psychedelics, providing an incredibly provocative account of his learnings. Ram Das dedicated the rest of his life towards distilling spirituality to the Western world. His work has helped to lay the foundation for a future where meditation, psychedelic therapies, and holistic medicine can be incorporated into Western allopathic medicine and create a healthier future for humankind. Number five, America Before by Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock is an investigative journalist who has spent his life studying ancient civilizations and providing an orthogonal view on archaeological findings. He has argued consistently that conventional archaeologists are far too often driven by their egos to defend antiquated theories about the history of human civilization, despite new evidence that contradicts these theories. In particular, Hancock has theorized that ancient civilizations across the globe benefited from a transfer of technology from a highly advanced civilization that lived about 12,000 years ago during the last ice age, and that this civilization could have been the famed Atlantis, which Plato first described around 360 BC. Hancock points out the recurring geometrical memes, the building of highly sophisticated archaeo-astronomical structures, and the similarities and beliefs about the soul and the afterlife. He notes these similarities across diverse geographies from the Serpent Mound in southern Ohio to Stonehenge in the UK, to the Amazonian rainforest, to the pyramids of ancient Egypt. One of the most intriguing pieces of evidence Hancock points to in his book is the recent discovery of genetic markers linking Amazonian tribes with Australian Aborigines dating back over 13,000 years. The most parsimonious explanation of this linkage would be a direct crossing of the Pacific from Australasia to South America of these ancient peoples, despite the fact that this violates the official timeline, which states that the first civilizations capable of transoceanic voyages were the Polynesians 3,500 years ago. 
Additionally, the accepted paradigm believes that the first Atlantic voyage was not successfully navigated until 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. From there, Hancock expands on the importance of the psychedelic brew ayahuasca, known as the vine of the soul, to the native Amazonians and its relationship with their origin story. Hancock highlights archaeological research of the Tucano tribe, in which they believe supernatural beings accompanied them on a journey to settle the great rivers of the Amazon basin. Once their task of settling the basin was completed, the spiritual beings returned to their otherworldly abodes. Before leaving, however, they took care to provide mankind with the means of communication of establishing contact with the spirit world. This means of communication was ayahuasca, a plant that opened the door into another dimension, a drug that produced visions in which the spirit being revealed themselves to men, talking, teaching, admonishing, and protecting. And now for my hot take on this research, I think that's exactly what can happen when taking psychedelics. That it enables humans to communicate telepathically with supernatural entities, be they extraterrestrial, transdimensional, or some other type of spiritual being. As crazy as this sounds, this theory is consistent with the work Dr. Joe Dispenza has been doing on the pineal gland, also known throughout history as the third eye chakra, or the eye of Horus. That the pineal gland in our brains acts like a radio transmitter and enables us to transduce energetic waves into information. That by producing hallucinogenic compounds, either exogenously through psychedelic medicines or endogenously through practices like meditation and trance, we enable our pineal glands to transduce frequencies of information that cannot be perceived in our default states of consciousness. Again, as crazy as this theory may sound, it's exactly how Terence McKenna stated he learned of novelty theory, which was communicated to him by an insect like E.T. while on DMT. It's also an idea that the folks at the DMTX program have been working to explore whether we can establish consistent communications with these supernatural beings while in a prolonged state of DMT exposure. Wild stuff. 